Welcome back to the Devin Kershaw Show. I'm Nat Hurst with Faster Skier. We've got a long-awaited mailbag episode for you this week where Devin takes us through questions from more than a dozen listeners. We cover World Cup competition formats, tactics, training, broadcasting, and a bunch of other random fun stuff. We'll be back soon with coverage of Olympic team selection and hopefully some more intel on the Olympic venue in Beijing. This episode of the Devin Kershaw Show is brought to you by Mount Bachelor Nordic Center. Located outside beautiful Bend, Oregon, the Mount Bachelor Nordic Center has 56 kilometers of daily groomed Nordic trails. With a season that typically runs late November until the end of May, Mount Bachelor has one of the longest Nordic seasons in North America. The Nordic Center hosts a full rental fleet, various instructional classes for all ages and abilities, an on-site retail store, and the cozy Nordic Cafe. So be sure to check out this winter wonderland this season. To learn more about tickets, passes, and resort amenities, go to mtbachelor.com. Before we get going, we have to have a retraction. Charlotte Kala did get the last women's spot. I was like, you know, I was, I was playing taps on my, on my trumpet. And uh, she defied all odds. They picked her. I, I, so, which is great. She has so much experience, but I, I thought, I thought the case was lost. The Swedish women are so strong and Kala didn't, um, Kala hasn't been skiing that well, although she has been skiing a little bit better the, over the tour and stuff. So, but uh, I think people that are expecting or hoping for her to be individual podiums at these Olympics, it's, uh, it's not realistic. Do they pass over someone that? No, no not really team? actually on the distance side of things. Like they, they did, they did take all the bigger names in the distance side of things. The question would be, do you take Hagstrom? But they take four sprinters. And do you really right. need to bring a spare sprinter? It's probably better to have a Kala on the team who is so versatile, especially with COVID. Like we've talked about over and over. If you get COVID in China, it, it's going to suck hard for you. And not only will you not race the Olympics, you're going to be trapped in China. And to have Kala as like your backup plan for the relay, let's say. I mean, the relay is wide open right now. It really is. With Ingveld not being in the Olympics for Norway... Um, and Foss's home really struggling. Uh, it's quite open. I mean, you have four teams that can really, really do it. So, uh, you know, Finland, the U S Russia and Norway, and there's three spots on the podium. So, you know, having an insurance policy in Charlotte Kala is pretty damn good for that leg three. She's what constitutes a, a wildly veteran at this point. Um, oh, yeah, big time. so um, okay, cool. So we've got uh, about 20 questions here. Let's go with two. Let's go with two minutes because I know that, um, you know, if we say two minutes, you'll go three minutes versus if we say three minutes, you'll go four minutes. Yeah, yeah I like it. The Wednesday. So, um, okay, let's do this. And I'll, um, I have a good app to signify when your time is up and then you can. Nice. Uh, I like it. Like a big red button, like shut up. Yeah, exactly. Boom. It's really great. <laughs> so, um, Okay, we're just gonna get right into this. I think I think it's awesome. I mean, I was telling Devin, like, you know, no one ever emails me about the legitimately, you know, uh, significant things that I write about, like, you know, the fate of Alaska as an oil state and stuff like that. But we literally have twenty people that emailed us questions. Some some people emailed us like twenty questions. We're not gonna get to all of them, but we're gonna try. So we'll start with Etienne Robichaud of Fredericton, New Brunswick. He asks, Devin has often referred to a Russian style of skiing when talking about Bolshunov last season. Could you guys elaborate the styles of the different countries last season? Uh, okay, well, yeah, let's just, let's start with that one. Can you elaborate the styles of the different country countries? Two minutes, go. Yeah, well, you know what? It's a, it's a great question. Thanks for the question. And then you're right. I do talk a lot about the Russian style of skiing. And 
you know, it's really noticeable in classic. They, they kind of have the similar style in skating as well, which is longer than the other countries. So in classic, they're, they're staying longer on each ski and they're pendulating their arms in a way that they're just spending more time on each ski. And it's also super powerful. So, you know, those that are cycling fans that are old <laughs> and remember uh, Lance Armstrong and Jan Ulrich, you know, Jan Ulrich would, would always ride a big gear. If you're a road cyclist that goes out with your buddies and there's just a guy that just grinds a bigger gear and then someone's spinning at a higher RPM, um, you know, skiing has moved to like a higher RPM style. And in classic, in skate, regardless of like Klebo's running, if you just watch on gradual uphills in classic and you, and you go back 20 years to now, you'll see that the, the pace is lifted. The, the tempo is higher now than it was. Whereas the Russians are really distinct that they have high power, take longer time on each stride, both in skating and in classic. And they can do that because they're strong enough. Like they're really, really strong and they have moved a lot. I mean, if you're going to go back and look at like Porkorov skating uh, in the nineties and then see Bolshinov now, they don't, it's not the same sport. Of course, that's not what I'm saying, but it, it is a distinct style. And um, between different countries, I mean, <laughs> really it's Russia and Norway. That's, those are the countries I like to compare the most to because they have distinct styles. Both those countries have distinct styles. Sweden, Switzerland, Germany. Germany also has a very distinct style, actually. Central Europe, more upright. So really, really, really upright in their, in their, in their skiing in Germany. So, but it's, it's a great question and uh, I hope that answers. What, I hope that's what you're looking for. Cool. All right. Well, that's, uh, we, we, we didn't even get to the end of two minutes there. So we'll move on. Uh, we have, a couple of similar questions offered by o Omar Armbruster and Ellen King, who uh, want to know wanted to know how does the green bib work, and can you explain in the next podcast the importance of tour points and how that relates to the overall standings in the tour and the overall World Cup? I know you kind of covered that in the last episode, but just you know maybe you can expand. Yeah, on yeah I can I can do that. So so as far as the green jersey, I'm not totally sure which green jersey they're alluding to because on the World Cup. The under 23 liter, it's a greenish jersey. And there was actually a greenish jersey of an under 23 liter earlier on in the tour as well. Um, so maybe that's what you're referring to. So in the overall World Cup, the, the woman or man that's wearing the green jersey signifies that they're under 23 years of age. So it's kind of like the young riders jersey. Um, if And yeah, so that's that. And the... Um, the tour points. So the tour is a huge, has all, it's pretty much everything. It has everything to say with the overall world cup. Really. It's really hard to win the overall world cup. If you're not in the top five of the tour to ski, really the top three. And the reason being at the end, each day, the winner gets 50 points for winning a world cup. Normally you get a hundred points. So, and then it falls from there. So that adds up. You have six races. If you win all six races, bang right there, you've got 300 points that goes towards the overall, but at the end, when you cross the finish line, the tour gives you, if you win the tour to ski, you get 400 points that go towards the overall. They're not ranked as distance points or sprint points. They're just ranked as overall points. And then they fall fairly dramatically. So 400 for the win, 320 for um, second and 240 for third, and then 200 for fourth. And where did he get those numbers? People are probably asking, like I just said, if you win a World Cup individually, not in a tour, not in a mini tour, just a normal World Cup, you get 100 points. And to win the overall World Cup, sorry, to win the overall tour to ski, they take an individual win and they multiply it by four. 
if you're second in a normal individual world cup, you get 80 points, multiply that by four, that gives you 320. If you're third, you get 60 points. So you see how much it's weighted to win, right? And if you're third, you, it's 240 points. So there's, you can see right there, if, if you're fourth in the tour de ski, you only get 200 points towards the overall, whereas the person at one gets 400 plus all the stage wins that they've done or all the stage results. So it has a, it has a lot to say. Okay. You hit, hit that right at two minutes. We're good here. Um, another tour to ski question. This one uh, offered by Bill McKibben of Vermont. I think some listeners might be familiar with Bill. Um, he wrote, uh, this was sort of during the uh, controversy around Frida Carlson taking out Jesse Diggins in, I think, the fourth stage. Uh, doesn't that Carlson tackle have huge implications, not just for the Tour de Ski, but for the Crystal Globe, which is the award given to the overall World Cup winner? Um, he has a couple other questions. Some of our, Some in our household think this was retaliation for... Jesse Diggins blowing by Carlson in the finish of the previous race in the 10K, which seems too sad to compliment, uh, comp, contemplate. Shouldn't Jesse just drop out of the tour now? So that's a few. I don't know if you want to take us through those. Yeah, two. no, I'll take that. And, and quite frankly, anytime we get feedback from Bill McKinnon, we've had him on this. We've had him on the podcast. I am such a New Yorker super fan. I have had a subscription forever. And yes, I still get them sent to me here in Little Hummer, Norway on paper. And anything bill writes instantly has me enthralled like he's an amazing writer and his activism work and or ag advocacy work uh for the environmental movement is is something that i have so much respect so the fact that he's asking cross-country ski questions every time i mean like i i have to pinch myself so it's a great question and does it have a lot of implications 100 percent I mean, we saw that already. We didn't know that Jesse came down with the cold and uh, she fell so far down in the standings. But of course, uh, for Jesse, she needed to have great results in the sprint to get those bonus seconds to give her a better chance in the overall. And if you want to be in, in the running for the overall, like I just said, you really kind of have to finish top three in the Tour de Ski, unless you're superhuman like Terezi Ohag that just wins every single race outside of the Tour and, and then you can still contend. But for Jesse... Uh, yeah, that was really, really tough. And should she have dropped out? Um, her chances of winning the tour were over after the sprint. They were um, when she got taken out by Frida. But her chances for the top three were still alive and well. So had she been healthy, uh, of course, just keep skiing. You can have a great result. Being top three in the tour to ski is an awesome result. And it also helps you for the overall. That said, she also got sick. And I don't care how small the cold is. If it was me and I got sick in the Olympic season in Beijing, I drop out right away. And she didn't. She finished. Um, so that was her decision that she made. But I am very happy to say that she's in Seyfeld, which is only 1,100 meters, which doesn't rank as altitude. People, folks following at home, 1,100 meters is an altitude. Uh, you start getting into altitude more once you get around like 14, 1,400 meters and above. So uh, should give her a great opportunity to get over her little cold. And then they will move to altitude fairly soon. That's for sure. So Happy healing, Jesse, and thanks for the great question, Bill. Can I, I'd actually just throw in one more thing there, which is, um, you know, when thinking about the implications for the World Cup overall of that, of that crash that, you know, Jesse was taken out. I mean, 
you got to think Frida Carlson is kicking herself too, right? I mean, she took herself out of the entire tour to ski. She's getting no points for the overall. I mean, you know, and, and there was the suggestion in Bill's question that it was intentional. I mean, maybe no. you can't know what was in her mind. No, the moment, you can. I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. No chance it was intentional. There's no chance it was intentional. It was a race incident. She made a bad decision. We've all made bad decisions in our, in our careers. Uh, but there's no chance it's intentional. So I forgot to answer that. But you're right. Absolutely right. Thanks for bringing that up. Frida Carlson is, was in there running for the, for the overall World Cup. She's never won the overall before. It's a huge award to be gunning for. Uh, it's not just a consolation prize, even at a championship. Winning the overall is a huge deal. And Frida, yeah, by, by making a, a, a bad decision out there on the race course that cost Jesse, it also cost her and it cost her the tour, like you said. So, um, but it's going to give her a lot of motivation for the championship. So those that have to race Frida Carlson at the Olympics, I feel sorry for you because she's going to be hungry. She's a fighter. They are so good. These three women, Jesse, Frida, and Terezi Ohug, I have never in 25 years of high-level skiing, I've never seen three women or three athletes, period, that can go so deep and just take every ounce of energy out of themselves on the race course every day. Not in the men. Mark Bjergen couldn't do it. Alex Harvey couldn't do it. Sunby couldn't do it. Not even close. Petter, give me a break. These three women are just so phenomenal that at the Olympics now with Frida getting, getting, um, having to go home early in the tour, it's, she's going to be, she's pissed because her overall, yeah, her overall dreams went up in smoke and now she's going to want some retaliation. You know that. So I'm looking forward to the Olympics already. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So, um, I like this question. This one's from Jimmy Gilbert, uh, also of Vermont. Um, he's got two questions. We'll start with the first one. Uh, where can I find good content? I had to work hard to find you guys as a newcomer. I want to know more about the conditions, the racers, et cetera. Does NBC plan to ever have boots on the ground at these events? Would it be terribly expensive for them to have one person on site to interview skiers providing other content? Is there a rights issue with whoever the European broadcaster is? I'm, this is Nat adding, what's going on? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm sorry to say, because this has been the plight of North American ski fans since the dawn of time. Um, it's great that you can have some streaming now on Peacock in the U.S., there's no commentary on Peacock now from what I've heard, which is just a travesty. Although I don't know what's better, no commentary or just garbage commentary where people have no idea what they're talking about, or they're pretending they know what they're talking about and they've never stepped foot, not one second on a world cup venue. Uh, so I'm sorry. I mean, I'm glad you found us. Uh, I think we, I think we are feeling, uh, I think we are feeling a little bit of a void, but if you're a super duper duper fan, I think like Google Translate and Swedish and Norwegian press can give you a really behind the scenes look at how things are going and then learn Norwegian. I don't know. No, I'm sorry. It's uh, it's, it's really, really tough. It, I, it, you know, it is kind of a vacuum. It is in North America. And, and I talk a lot of shit and this is podcast is like, we've talked about before, like pretty, a pretty raw, I'd say it's, it's definitely, <laughs> it's uh, just a raw look at um my perspective or your perspective, like our perspective on cross-country skiing without much filter. So I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. But as far as like getting a good in-depth analysis of conditions, technique, expert commentators, that sort of thing, I'm sorry. I mean, there's just not that many names in the U.S. Could, that could honestly offer that sort of perspective. Uh, same in Canada, they're just not. And the commentators that do it for the Olympics and that sort of stuff, by and large, are fairly checked out or not super current with what's going on for real at the world cup today with the athletes that are happening now. And that's just the plight of North American, 
broadcasting right now. And, and are they planning to, to have boots on the ground and, and get commentators? I think the only way to do that is sadly to say a little bit like your senators in the US and, uh, and um, MPs in Canada, like write letters, make phone calls, say, write to NBC and say, this is something you really enjoy and you'd love to see a commentator. Although quite frankly, um, I think uh, it's quite an uphill battle, but you know, they, they got uh, the NFL season extended by two games. So anything's possible. <laughs> so I should add two things. One is I do feel like we got to at least hat tip Chad Salmola uh, for being, you know, a, sem- a, 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 a well-informed, um, bro- you know, maybe the one well-informed broadcaster. I don't want to leave him out. And then, um, you know, I know the faster skier crew and probably you Devin, like, Google Translate, if you're if you really want to nerd out, like, you know, you can you can read, you know, tons of coverage on, you know, NRK, um, you know, other Norwegian websites, uh, uh, Swedish websites like Expressin and uh, Aftenbladet, like where, you know, just just kind of use Google Translate, check out some of the Scandinavian press, even some of the Russian press. There's like a ski sport dot that I know sort of I've looked at the faster skier staff reviews on a pretty regular basis. I'm going to, I'm going to sort of flip to another, uh, TV related question. Um, Eric from Washington state, his, the intro to his question is love the pod, such a dork fest. And I love the unfiltered nature. Glad you don't have a boss in a corner office who sports a suit and tie. Keep up the shit talking and making obscure foreign tabloids. Just felt like that was an important thing to read. Um, (laughs) Eric wants to know, he has some questions about finding delayed broadcasts, but the the most important part of his question, he says here, um, it's been hard to find stuff on YouTube, but maybe even more troubling than the, than the sporadicness is where the hell are Mike Dixon and David Goldstrom? These guys are legendary. He's talking about these old Eurosport broadcasters. These guys are legendary. And if Muzzy Andrew Musgrave was on point that day, it got even better. The guy on the broadcast this year, I'm sure, is a really nice guy, but it's literally about 3% maybe of the quality of the traditional announcers. Do you know, Devin, where they are and if they'll be back? I know you worked for Eurosport for World Champs in 2019 with these guys. Who is this other dude trying to announce? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, this is the this is also a plight of FIS, actually, is that the right holders for all these different countries change all the time. So here in Norway, for example, there's just some legendary commentators in Norway that everyone loves. They're like, you know, it's, they're like part of the family. Tell, 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 have, tell us a little bit about them. Well, there's just like, well, they can actually kind of piss you off a bit too sometimes. But right now that the two main expert commentators is a guy named Jan Post and Torger Bjorn. And, uh, you know, they can talk some good shit, uh, but they do it with such authority that, you, you know, they kind of got the whole Norwegian population behind them and and uh for the first time in a long time nrk doesn't have the world cup rights actually anymore they have it only for the stops in norway so that's home and colon and lillehammer and aside from that it, there's other groups that like private actors that that have taken the rights in norway it's it's a group called nent and then tv2 has some rights it's just a bunch of private actors and they have to come up with their own team and their own team is is not the team that all of a country has been used to hearing you know what i mean and it's the same in nfl football in the us it's the same with mlb and, and nhl of course there's just like some legendary commentators and, and we just don't have that in in cross-country scheme so the dixon and, and uh, goldstrom like they were they were that for for your sport in 
in Britain for the English for the English feed. And I also have noticed that that they're <laughs> that they're missing. I don't have any good answers for you. I'm not sure where they went, but the only thing I can think of is that the right holders have changed for these events. And that's affecting that's affecting budgets, that's affecting who they can have. And uh, yeah, it's affecting a lot of different things. So um, we're just gonna have to suffer through it. And where can you find uh, tape delay or things like that? I know there was some like rogue YouTube channels uh, back in the day that people would post like instantly. Um, not sure if any of those still exist. We could dig around and see if we could find one. I, I haven't found one, but I don't need one either. Um, but I do know that a lot of people use VPNs so, you know, change your IP address to a country that uh, has good coverage. You won't be able to understand what they're saying necessarily, which is a bummer. But, um, you know, at least you'll be able to watch the, the races on tape delay. You can study uh, Norwegian or Russian or Swedish or Finnish if you really want to. So, uh, okay, Tracy McCowan, um, as a Canadian living in Vermont, I'm wondering where the Canadian skiers were for the tour. I was really looking forward to seeing Seer. Are they all about prepping for the Olympics? Yeah, this is a great question. Where are the Canadians at the tour? It just didn't fit with their Olympic prep uh, this year. And that said, there are a couple men that were skiing at an incredibly high level, Olivier Levillier and Antoine Sierra, Tony. Uh, and I, I miss having them there at the tour because I think they had they have absolutely proven that they're at a level to be at the tour. It would have been awesome to see them there. I think it would have been great for their for their Olympic preparation, to be totally honest, to have those two guys there. On the flip side, no women have shown anywhere close to a level to be racing six races in a row uh, as part of an Olympic preparation. And consequently, only one woman had met the Canadian Olympic standards. That was Catherine Stewart-Jones. And all the others had to be in Camor going on right now at the Olympic trials. And there's three spots left up for grabs uh, since there's only one that has made the A criteria, the international criteria with Catherine Stewart-Jones. So of course, if you were going to take a team to the tour and you're going to take two men and one woman, uh, it doesn't make financial sense. And Canada is hugely financial strapped. And also, again, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but with these COVID regulations, if you're going to take a skeleton team to the tour as far as athlete goes, that's one thing, but you, you need minimum six staff for these things and you're putting them at risk and they cost money. And if they get sick, Canada doesn't have like 20 techs that can take over or 30 techs that can take over for the Olympics or, or, or later on in the season. So I think it was a smart call by the Canadians as disappointing as it was not to see, especially those two men from Quebec on the tour. I think that was a bit of a miss, but Canada is in a, tough place right now as far as budget goes and they're putting all their eggs into the olympic basket antoine sear just won the skate sprint at at the canadian olympic trials yesterday and he is not the best sprinter you've ever seen in your life so that shows that his form is quite good which is great and now he'll spend time at higher altitude i know that they're going to do a pre-camp in silver star which is about 1600 odd meters and they're in camo right now which is just over 1400 meters so um hopefully that'll set them up well for the olympic games Right, Justin Trudeau, and complain that you want more support for the uh, Canadian Olympic yeah. team. Um, Riley, OTP, you just get the hell out. Own the podium <laughs> is a disgrace. That, but anyway, that's a, that's something for something else. Riley Troyer uh, writes: As a skier who started doing more bike racing, I've been thinking a lot about team tactics. 
Perhaps I'm missing it, but I don't see much teamwork in mass start ski races. For example, in stage three of the tour of the 15K skate, it seemed like the only way Russia had a chance of beating Klaibo was by working together to wear him down, make him chase, etc. Do you see team dynamics ever becoming a more prominent aspect of the sport? Oh, this has been discussed since also since the dawn of mass start racing, which started in earnest like 25 odd, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, really. And it's just picked up from there. It's weird. Okay. It, it is weird that cross-country skiing has no team tactics. That said, the draft you get in cross-country skiing, it is a draft. So you do get some advantage, but it's not actually all that big. And in cycling, if you're on a flatter stage of a tour or even just a flatter part of a race course and they're 200, 200, over 200 kilometers you know, if you're sitting right in the middle of that 200 person Peloton, you're ripping around at like 45, 50 K an hour and not working that hard. Uh, you just don't get that rest ever in cross country skiing. So it is weird. That said, it would be interesting to see teams, especially the big teams like Russia or Norway, if somebody went off the front that another teammate in the chase group could go to the front and try and slow it down or, or take control and kind of let that let that person off the front dangle. And the Norwegians have done that on the men's side on occasion, but very rarely. Uh, and the Russians never do it. Um, so I think they could absolutely do that, especially in the years past when Ustugov or Bolshunov were at such a high level. It was, you would see people chasing down, uh, or not chasing down, but Bolshunov would be out front, let's say, and then a, a, another Russian would be in the chase group, like drilling it. But it's just not part of the culture. And I, it would be cool to see it change for sure. But you know, the drafting effect really starts happening once you're going over an average of like 30K an hour. And we do move at 30K an hour quite quite often, the men's almost always. Um, so it's not completely negligible, but fitness is such a huge thing. Technique such a huge thing. It is just not quite as easy. You just don't get the rest you do in, in cycling or, or, in, or in running, because that's another thing. You do find team tactics in running at, at once in a while, like someone's pacing someone else. And that you definitely could do. That you definitely could do, but these teams are so competitive and spots are so limited, right? Like on these countries, the big countries only get six starts now per per gender for the World Cup. So it, it's so hard to get a start on the World Cup for some of these monster teams like Russia or or Norway that nobody is willing to, to sacrifice their chance at glory to pull 5K for Claybo kind of thing. It, it's just it's just not part of the culture. Well, could, I mean, I, uh, following that up just really quickly, I mean, could we envision a team event that's not a relay where like, you know, you are actually racing an event at, it's like a team time trial, like, like, you know, they do or, or something like that, just where it's like, it's designated from the start that it's sort of not an individual race and you actually have sort of the goal of, I mean, I don't know, it's just an idea. Um, but Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure, like we, you see that in long distance racing. Uh, the professional like Visma ski classics, they, they, they're, they're messing around with team trial and trials and stuff. But I think it's just like a total snooze fest to have a bunch of dudes like double pulling together, but they're kind of skating everywhere. Like, I don't know, but, um, but they're, they're trying different things. I think you could in cross country skiing. I think there's a couple ideas that could be fun to try is you think about world cross country, like cross country running in the U S and in and world championships and everything, the team event matters. And that's like scoring, like having a number of, like you, you, your results get translated into points and then the lowest point score wins a team competition. I think that would be really fun. There is a team competition at the end of the year, kind of like an overall uh, team competition 
uh, and it's really a battle between Norway and, and Russia on the men's side of things the last few years. But they do they do celebrate it at the end of the year, like if Russia wins or if Norway wins, they definitely celebrate it, do big team photos. Like it's a, it's a big deal. So so there is that happening. I think what would be really fun in cross-country skiing would be to have like a race, like a criterium where where you put it on a shorter loop, let's say like a kilometer and a half sprint loop or or even a 2K or like 2K loop max. And every lap, the, the back five have get pulled. And you just it's kind of it's like a war of attrition to see you keep going till there's so there's only like one group, like a group of five or whatever. And then they have to sprint it out to see who wins. And then I think you could see some team tactics happening there to position people, leading people out, that sort of thing. But in the current, in the current um, iterations of the world cup racing, like with 15 K individual starts and 10 K individual starts for the women and then mass starts, it's, it's just, it's just not in the cards right now, but you know, it, it's an interesting idea. And I, I, I do agree with you. I, I, I struggle. And this was discussed at our team a lot in my too long on the world cup is like watching a race or watching it afterwards. I mean, you were in it or you were in the race and you're going like, why is the guy from the same country chasing down the dude that's up the track? Like, I don't get this. And I agree. It's ridiculous. It's hilarious. It makes us look like two bit hacks. It does, but it just hasn't changed yet. And I'd like to see it change honestly, because it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Well, let's actually, there, we had a couple of folks, um, these are more uh, sort of ideas and observations that got sent in after we had a discussion about men and women uh, on the World Cup racing, you know, men racing longer distances than women, and might throw these out there and see if you have any reactions. Um, I'm just going to summarize. We heard from a Peter Thomas in Canmore, uh, who said he thinks that the difference in, in distance is demeaning. Um, and he says, I'd standardize the distance races for men and women at 5k individual to give the sprinters a second event to shoot for. So 5k individual, 15k individual, 30k skiathlon and 50k, at least one event per season mass start and one individual. Um, I think Nordic skiing could adopt some ideas from biathlon, like run a 5k individual followed by a 5k pursuit. I'd also make changes at the Olympics. I hate the fact that the techniques alternate between games. So Niskanen doesn't get to defend his 50K classic gold in China, but has to wait another four years for the chance by which time he might be past his prime. No other sport does this. It might get logistically complicated, but I would run classic and skate races at each distance at the same Olympics, including the sprints. And then we had another listener, Joran Elias, who uh, you know used to run, maybe still does run a sort of statistical skiing analysis um, blog or website. He said, I think it would be interesting to convert all mass starts to essentially a cyclocross format. That is mass start on a shortish loop for a fixed period of time after which you do one or maybe two final loops. So you might have a mass start on a 3K loop where they ski for 30 minutes. And once the 30 minutes are up, they do one or two final loops. You might do mass starts with fixed time periods of say 30, 60 to 90 minutes, whatever. Uh, it would be a convenient way to make the races the same for men and women, at least with mass starts and interval starts would obviously have to still be standardized on distance. So any of that strike you with uh, inspiration or excitement? Yeah. Yeah. I think like the, the latter that you just described, like, I, I agree. I think it'd be so fun to throw in some cyclocross style racing. I think it'd be so interesting. Uh, I think it would make, it would make for, just, yeah, I mean, it, the, the transition period would be a little hard to watch because people wouldn't really understand what they're doing. And probably, and the men's side would be 
fairly boring because those early laps, like people just wouldn't be willing to push because they just don't understand what cyclocross is that you can actually get that lead like in time or laps or distance and that counts for the end <laughs> so that would take some time to to kind of convince the cross-country skiers or teach them how to do it but i, I think cyclocross is an amazing event i think it'd be really fun to see it tried in cross-country skiing the same with that criterium idea i discussed um the idea of having standardized distances for men and women, I do agree the men and women should be able to race the same distances. I don't think it's that hard, big a deal. I think the men can come down to 10K once in a while, and they have done that the last few years, which I think is good. Um, and the women do 15Ks, but the fact that the women's long race that is raced often in the season is 15K, but whereas the men is 30 is a joke and it is demeaning and it's bullshit. Like they have to standardize that. I think, uh, I think the women can also do 50 K because also demeaning why is the long distance race for women, 30 K and the men do 50, uh, the marathon in the summer Olympics is 42.2 K. It's always 42.2 K whether you have balls or not, it doesn't matter. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the marathon. It's the, it's the test of endurance. And I would like to see that in, in cross country skiing. Yes. The gaps would be huge to it would win by a few more minutes or Frida or whatever, but who cares? You know what? That happens in marathoning too on the roads. So just standardize that long distance. The idea that having five K's would bring sprinters into the game is just not true. And the reason for that is a five K <laughs> is actually more of a capacity race than a 10k it's it's like hardest race to get right and we talked about this a lot because it used to be prologues in the tour de ski and they would take around like eight to 12 minutes and what does that correspond to really if you're like track and field that corresponds to like a 3000 at an elite level a three a 3000 to a 5000 on the track and guess what like a 400 meter runner or an 800 meter runner is going to get the doors blown off them and it it suits the distance runners better and in cross-country skiing, as soon as you get up over that three-minute barrier, because there's breaks and stuff like that, it, it is completely aerobic. It's a 100% aerobic competition. A 5K just plays into Kruger's hands. It plays into Holand's hands. It plays into guys that can't sprint their way out of a paper bag because they have a higher VO2 max, they're more efficient, and they're just better. And now Klebo is good in everything and has a crazy high VO2 max, skis beautifully and can win sprints. So, you know, Klebo would just win the 5K either way. But, but I think if you go back and you look at, at the prologues of a couple of years, or it's getting to be quite some years ago now, but if you really want to dork out, you could go back and look at the results list, the top 30 of, of all these prologues of the Tour de Ski, and, and you start counting up sprinters that are in the top 10. They're never there, or they're very, very rarely there. And that's because <laughs> capacity is king and it's the capacity skiers that win. Cool. All right. Well, we'll move on. Uh, Kirsten Hemsley of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Kirsten had a number of questions. I'm going to pull out a couple of my favorites that actually I'm going to throw like three at you one at a time uh, that maybe we, we just sort of hit these quickly. Her first one is, does it bother anyone else when the sprint winners slow down before the finish line? Sometimes there's a ton of space and that's fine, but when it's pretty tight and people behind you are fighting for lucky loser spots, isn't it rude or am I just a Midwestern fuddy-duddy? I love Clybo, but, uh, you know... Yeah. And you know what it does? It, it is weird. And you are screwing the guys behind you, but it's a dog eat dog world out there. And the people that are in the front of that sprint race, they sadly don't care if there's people charging behind them. They just want to get across that line one, two, uh, with spending as least amount of energy as possible. 
So, and you, and, and sadly not, not to just like belittle that point, but, but you, you know, you, you don't have eyes at the back of your head. You're tired too. You're blasted at the end of a sprint. You, you really have no true concept of what's happening behind you. So, you know, you got to have your energy for the final. That's, that's how these sprint competitions are created. You have to do multiple rounds a day. So you got to just ski through the line. And, and, and if you're not behind, it's, it's, it's up to you to get to the front and, and get to the line. I'm sorry. You know, I'm pushing back on that because I think these sprinters like Clybo, like they totally have eyes in the back of their head because they're like, you guys, they're looking behind each other to like make sure they're not about to get, you know, busted. And there is totally kind of a douchebag thing of I'm so far ahead. I'm actually going to take my poles off oh, yeah. before I cross the finish line. And oh, yeah, like, you know, I mean, it's like, it's a petter, it's a petter Northern thing too. Like, there's there's something there's something I think there is something legit about that that it, you know we can call yeah, yeah, can call it, that it, I mean it, it can be it can it can look a little douchey but at the same time I mean it's for the people in the back to, to get a little fitter and position themselves a little better and get get ahead I mean if they're getting quote-unquote screwed because the because Clebo slows down at the finish line that's on you like you, you put yourself in a bad position I'm sorry yeah well if I see you doing that out at Kincaid Park, um, you might get stabbed with a with a. <laughs> um, okay, so se- second quick question from Kirsten Hensley: Who are the guys who brush the snow off their boots oh, yeah, uh, before the race? Uh, are they race helpers or technicians from their country? Also, in mass starts, it seems like just the top skiers get their boots brushed. Who makes the boot brushing cut? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it is actually the service team that does it and not the individual service team from the from the athletes in mass starts it's the it's the companies so the fisher fisher travels with a number of um servicemen and so does solomon and so does rosnall and so does matsus and at the start grid it's they are allowed to actually come into the start grid and the individual technicians from each individual country are not allowed normally so is there a pecking order? You're damn right. There's a pecking order. And it's so annoying if you're not on that pecking order, or even like Alex and I have talked about that in the past and we were on Fisher and, you know, I'm in second in the overall and Alex is like sixth in the overall, but like the fifth good, the fifth best Norwegian is getting his boots like cleared out before the race. And you're like, come on, we got like under a minute to go, like clear my boots out and no one's clearing your boots out. And you're like trying to crank out that ice with your finger and you're like i'm sucking in the overall this is bullshit and so so there is a bit of a pecking order and it's kind of weird but it is um but it is a hundred percent the uh the company guys but there's no list or anything they don't have like they don't go into the star grid with a list like okay i gotta go to claybo first i gotta they're making those decisions on their own but but uh as a canadian that's been in that position you definitely get a bit stressed out when when you're not uh getting your boots cleared quick enough quick enough um but yeah there but there is an unwritten rule there's an unwritten pecking order the people that are at the top in the overall world cup or the distance cup let's say that's where it's most relevant and then with the sprints if you see people again, like if you're in the start area, we have to walk quite a ways. It, again, it's the service, the servicemen from the industry, the ski companies that are doing that for the athletes that are sponsored on their equipment. And if it's an individual start or if the sprint start is really close to the big pen, then it's your technicians, your own technicians that you'll always have one or two usually have one technician minimum and then one or two coaches in that, in that area. And they have scrapers and groove scrapers to knock the ice out of the, that, between that middle bar, that's what people use all the time. It's like a, a groove scraper. Uh, and then a big normal scraper that you scrape skis with just to scrape off the ice that are on it. So, yeah. Did, did you ever make the cut to have Fisher? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I made the cut, but I felt like I always, was always slighted a little bit with Fisher. But, you know, you know, Fisher is not there to 
to, to sing you lullabies and uh, kiss you goodnight. They're there to give you good skis. And I always had great skis with Fisher, but uh, uh, as a Canadian on Fisher, you definitely feel that you're a second-class citizen because they, they, they just don't offer the same service to Canadians that they do for their bigger markets, which is Norway and Russia, where they sell more skis. And they're, they're pretty cynical as a company that way. So, and I was on Fisher forever. So, and I love the skis, but uh, you know, you definitely notice that. Whereas like smaller companies like Solomon or Rossi do uh, maybe a better job uh, spreading the love. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I definitely, yeah, I definitely never got my boots brushed out. Uh, it was a big sore spot for me. Um, okay, last question from Kirsten Hensley. Why do so many countries choose blue racing suits? Even Italy, so many great colors there for the taking if you wanted to stand out. Good question. It's a, it's a great question. I wish I had a good answer for you, but I, I just don't. If you want to see some nasty suits, Google Norwegian 2022 Beijing Olympic suits. And that's a question I have. So when you're watching the Olympics in a month, you can please write to me and go like, why in God's name did the Norwegian team decide to go with this ugly disaster? And Norway usually has like the nicest suits going and my, oh my, we almost have to put a picture into it. So it's like, it's, it's a train wreck of a, of a design. So, so I would, I would much rather have blue suits than whatever Norway's rocking in Beijing. But yeah, no, it's a good question. There's a lot of blue suits. I don't know. People love it, but Italy having a blue suit. It's true. Red, white, and blue, sorry, red, red, white, and green. I don't know why you're rocking around in the blue suit, but uh, they look sharp. I don't know. Maybe it's slimming. I don't know. Okay, um, we'll move through a quick comment and then get back to a question. We had a we had a reader. I don't want to I don't want to out them because I think this was intended to be constructive criticism. But this was an email directly to me. Enjoy the podcast. If you can eliminate the frequent, repeated use of "like" and "you know" in your speech, you will sound much better. Give a listen to Mike Dixon and Patrick Winterton announcing biathlon or cross country on Eurovision. Nary a filler word. Compact, direct speech is faster and more effective. I think this was directed specifically to me i'm gonna apologize you know i just i i don't have the gift of gab so um you know people are gonna have to live with it um joseph m coleman asks how can the men's cross-country circuit become more competitive at the current tour to ski through five stages the difference between first place and 10th is two minutes 15 seconds whereas for the men uh, I guess he was referring to the women. He says, whereas for the men, it is four minutes and 50 seconds. So how can changes be made to the men to make men's skiing more competitive and exciting to watch? Not like we've ever discussed this issue before. Yeah, yeah but I, I don't mind taking this again. Like I, it's a great criticism and it's a real thorn in my side as a fan. Uh, and nothing makes me more curmudgeonly or uh, sour than saying back in the days, but I'm going to say it again. I'm going to give a good old back in the days because right now, Norway and Russia are just head and shoulders above any other nation. And it's making it boring. I agree. And it's destroying races. As far as the tour, don't be, it's, there's been 16 years of the tour, but there's been some absolute blowouts by Sunby, by Dario Colonia has just like walked away from the tour by like minutes and minutes and minutes before. Um, so you're going to have athletes here and there that just is way better at blowing the tour, the tour to ski specifically out, out of the water, but in the races themselves to see only Russian and Norwegian suits really now almost down to the top 15 is it's worrying. And the reality is they're better trained. They ski better and they have better equipment and one thesis I like to say a little bit is that I think with climate change and, and more incremental weather, 
and dirtier conditions and that sort of thing, you're starting to be paid a lot more for, for equipment now than maybe you were 15 years ago. Um, but there's a lot of bad conditions then too. But I, I, I'm just trying to find any answer because it seems just absolutely bonkers to me that Norwegians are just straight up like the eighth best or like the 15th best Norwegian is that much fitter than the second best Italian. Like that, that I struggle with that or, or the, the best German couldn't even come top 15 in a Norwegian cup, let's say. I don't understand that, but I, I also think that there, we now have like this self-fulfilling prophecy that is propagated on the men's side that like people just expect Norway and Russia to be better and, and people aren't taking enough risk and aren't, don't have a big enough chip on their shoulder to go like, screw these guys. I can compete with these guys. Like, what does it matter? Like they're Norwegian, they're Russian. doesn't matter. I train my ass off. I want it just as much. I, I work hard. I've been working on my technique. I've been working on my, on my equipment and my strength and, and I belong and we're not seeing it. I don't know why. I mean, you know, like there was many, many years. Like I, I like to say this too, because in 20, like in 2012, like when I was second in the overall and Alex was sixth in the overall, start going back and looking to see like how many people, how many Norwegians were in the top 10 overall that year in 2012, I'll tell you one Petter. Petter was third in the overall that year. He was the only one. So it's not like this Norwegian dominance where we're, there's eight guys in the top 10 every weekend. This isn't something that's normal. This isn't something that's been happening that much. It happened in the nineties with Bjorn Dali era. And I think that happened because they had wax that was, they had a service team that was just so much better than any other country. Cause it was so many changes happening on the equipment side and on the waxing side at that time. And Norway just had a distinct huge advantage at that time. But now that gap should have been narrowed. And not that long ago, you had a lot of different people fighting at the top. There was a, there was a run there where you had Germans winning the overall world cup every single year. You know, you had like Sommerfeld won the overall world cup. Then the season after you had Teichmann win the overall world cup Then anger won the overall world cup two years in a row. And they were just so dominant. And now there's no, well, I mean, Mach, like we talked about Mach and Bogle up the hill. That was great. Hopefully that gives them a bit of confidence, but in the, in the normal world cups, they're, they're not even close and no country's even close. So well, train harder well, and be better. Just get better and believe more. That's all I can say. Like, I mean, this shit's not that complicated. You gotta, let, you gotta work harder and be better. Let me ask a quick question about that. I mean, do you, we've talked about this a lot and I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious thing to anyone who's not from Norway, that there's this issue around competitiveness on the world cup. Like you're in Norway, you're presumably pretty well connected with the, you know, brain trust of the sport. And, and maybe, I don't yeah. you know, I don't know if you still talk with like your Kapol, who's the, the FIS like marketing director, but like, do you think that the powers that be in FIS and that are kind of running the sport, like realize the level of sort of dissatisfaction by non-Norwegians with like the status quo and the race format, oh, yeah. and the TV production, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know what? There's, there's a huge amount of inertia with the TV production stuff. And that, that just like, I have no idea why they just do not see the absolute train wreck that they're running, <laughs> that you can have productions week in week out that are night and day like you watch home and colon on tv and it's filmed and on oslo the 50k every spring and it's like amazing it's packed with people it, 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 it's filmed beautifully you're telling great stories it's it's awesome and then you 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 liken that to the 15k in davos and it's like yeah i honestly think you could just get a whole bunch of teenagers with the iphones 
uh, iPhone 13 pros or whatever out there on specific points and run along the side of the trail. And it'd be way better when, than whatever Davos is doing on that distance race. And, and there's no other sports that are like that. Like really, like, you know what I mean? You watch an NFL game. There's just the, you turn it on if it's on NBC or if it's on ABC or if it's on ESPN, it, it, it's, it's produced well, the angles are good. They have slow-mos, <laughs> they have good commentators. Uh, same with hockey, same with baseball, same with all these other sports. Bathlon, they own the production rights like I've harped on over and over on this podcast. So when you watch a bathlon race, if it's in Oberhof or if it's in Antholz or if it's in Oslo, uh, it looks professionally done. It's filmed with cable cameras. It, 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 you're able to tell a story. And Cross country doesn't do that, and it's a it's a disgrace, and it's a disaster, and they have to they have to, they have to do something about it. But there is huge inertia there, so that I don't know. But they do worry about the dominance of Russia and Norway, and they their case in point is like used, bigger countries used to be able to get max of eight eight athletes in their quota World Cup quota. That's been cut down to six. They've cut down on certain venues and championships. How many servicemen big countries can take with them? Back in the day, it was a free-for-all, so Norway could take like 25 servicemen, or Russia could take 20 servicemen. They can't do that anymore. It's controlled with bibs, so you only have a certain amount of course bibs. You only have a certain amount of stadium bibs, that sort of thing. And there's some workarounds that Norway does by working with Great Britain, which is all Norwegian coaches, or working with Iceland or whatever. But but whatever, that that's that's free market economy at work, so we're not going to touch that. But um, So they are trying to do something that they can do. But at the end of the day, skis matter a lot. And Fisher wants the best to have the best equipment, just like, you know, Lewis Hamilton gets a great car. McLaren wants Lewis Hamilton to have a great car in F1 because they want him to win. I mean, that's just how it is. And um, that is definitely happening across country skiing. And, and in Alpine, it happens too, right? You know, like, Kilda, like the best speed skier and or one of the best speed skiers in the world, like from Atomic, like he gets, he gets great equipment from Atomic because he's number one or not, or he's number one on Atomic for speed. He gets the pick of the litter. That's just how it is. And, but in cross country skiing where that, that sort of stuff really matters, it exacerbates the problem. It does. And, and, uh, but how, how, how can't really do much about that. That's, that's well, free market economy. So I you, mean, you, they, you guys had, Zach Caldwell on uh, last, you know, over the summer talking about, you know, we could standardize skis, um, you know, folks could write Fisher telling him to give Clybo some crappier skis so we have more competitive races. So, I mean, it's not, we don't, I don't think we have to completely throw up our hands, but I, I, I hear you. Um, I, I, we've got like half a dozen more here. Um, uh, seems like we could, we can move to, so we've got Emily Blevins. She sent a bunch of questions, but um, this, this actually seems like a good follow-up. Um, can you share more information on why certain countries consistently struggle with classic waxing? Every classic 10K feels like it's over before it really starts. Yeah, that's a good question. And there's just there's just huge, huge discrepancies on systems and expertise. And classic is just such a nuanced thing because people like to think in classic, the only thing that matters is the grip wax but it's not, you still have to wax the ski for glide wax too, you know? So that takes two completely different teams. You need a glide team that's trying to work out the best, the best glider and the best structure and the best grind. And then you need a kick team that is like working on trying to find the fastest and best kick uh, you can do. And that's incredibly difficult. And you know what? Norway has the best system in the world. They have, <laughs> it's a systems game and, and any engineer that's listening to this would, would, would love to see inside that truck and just see how they work because 
they have more experienced technicians, but they also have a system that they run and it's a super tight ship. So they have more bodies that know more. And when conditions are difficult, guess what? They're going to limit their variables a lot better than a small team that is trying to do everything. If you have not many techs, like Norway maybe travels with 12 technicians or 10 technicians, and then uh, a smaller team travels with four. And then it's a challenging day for classic. Well, it's also, if it's a challenging day for classic, that means it's around zero. Uh, maybe it's snowing, maybe the snow is dirty, something like that. Well, guess what? That's also challenging glider conditions too, to find a glider that works. So you have to just start watering down your technician team and it becomes a, it becomes a nightmare. So, so that, that's just how it is. It's uh, I agree. It, 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 it is difficult, but, but classic, there's a, there's magic and engineering and science combined into one big alchemy of disaster. If, if the conditions uh, line up, right. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll go to Sebastian off uh, He says, I was shocked to read that Ingvild Flugstad Oaksberg was left off the Norwegian national team going forward and missed the tour to ski while also missing the Olympics. It seemed like she was finally getting up to speed with the rest of the competition. The media is reporting it was due to a health situation related to a balance of diet and exercise. It seems odd because you could argue she's performed better than a handful of her teammates in her last rate race. Excuse me. Interested to hear Devin's thoughts on this situation. Yeah, it's an incredibly sad situation. And we covered this over the last few years because Ingveld has been had to sit out quite a few races and the long and short of it is Norway is a world leader when it comes to uh, essentially think about it like a, a health report card and they put the health of the athletes above performance and I have all the respect in the world for for Norway to do that um, but there's just certain bone density values that you need to that you need to hit not just bone density, there's a number of values, the blood tests and stuff, but they lean heavily on a scanner called like a DEXA scanner um, that of course it measures your body fat and it measures the percentage of your lean muscle mass, your fat to muscle ratio, a whole bunch of other things. But, but really when it comes right down to it is, is bone density. And this is a huge thing for, for men and women. But if you look statistically for women as they age, osteoporosis, these kind of issues, is more prevalent in women. And if you're playing with fire as a woman, it can have long-term effects in a huge, huge way. It can as with men as well. Oh my God. Like absolutely it can with men. And the men also have to have a health report card that they pass. If this isn't a gender-based thing in Norway. And uh, sadly that Ingveld was right on the bubble, right, right on the, on the edge of what was, um, of the cutoff values for all these different things. And so she was allowed to race and they had a conservative uh, comeback competition plan. And sadly it, um, you know, it was too close to the edge and she wasn't able to maintain that, that progress that she was making. And the health team has decided that the health of the athlete is more important than competition. And they've put a stop to it. And I, I it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for, for Ingveld. I, I, I just like, what a, what a mess and uh, not a mess. Sorry. It's not a mess. It's just tragic. It's just a tragic situation. Um, but you know, the body's a, a strange thing. And if you, if you played close to the edge for a number of years, it's, it's not like it can turn, it can turn quickly. Um, but you know what, as fun as all this is, as fun as all cross country skiing is, or any high level sport, as much as it feels like it's everything in, in uh, there and then, uh, hopefully God, God willing that we'll get older and, 
and uh, have other things to do in our lives as well. And, and you want to be able to have a long and enjoyable life so you can cross country ski as well when you're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, uh, 90, then you're a total boss. But um, we think that's a super, super sad situation, but she's uh, the health team has decided that the progress, like I said, I wasn't, um, she wasn't able to maintain that progress and they've just put a stop to the season. It sounds conservative for sure. And it sounds actually like pretty crazy. And there's a lot of questions here in Norway too, like, well, you let her race in as early as Davos and now it's all done. Now the Olympics are over and the season's over. And I don't know the nuances there. I don't. So I, I can't comment uh, at a deeper level than there's health report card and she was on the bubble. And after period one, some racing, she slipped below that, that, that cutoff and now she's out. Is the Norwegian press, I mean, I, it seems like there's this level with, with Osberg of like below the surface sort of understanding that like this is, or maybe I'm totally wrong here, but that this relates to like an, an eating disorder or eating disorders, which I know is like not an issue that's limited to Norway and something that's a really hard issue to discuss. And as two, you know, dudes, we probably should be pretty careful about it, um, going off about it on a podcast. But I, I, one thing I'm curious about is like how much of that part of the discussion is like openly happening in Norway, or is it all kind of like the media coverage? Is it kind of like euphemistic where it's like, you know, just talking about report card and not meeting the report card, but not getting at the underlying issue, which might actually be an important thing to be talking about. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It is a really difficult conversation to have. And it's a conversation that needs to be happening, not just for women, because it's it happens in men in endurance sport too at a high level. And this is something that has to be discussed. Um, it's been a huge deal in Norway with the biggest newspapers and tabloids having like this like weekly article that are getting like tons of clicks and following like top level athletes that have struggled with this, but also like up and coming athletes that have struggled with it. There's some journalists that have done some really questionable ethical stuff, I think, <laughs> like kind of running like pseudoscientific studies and then publishing it. And then, so it's been a huge, huge, huge discussion uh, in Norway the last six plus months, been massive. Like I've never seen that before. So it's definitely coming to the fray and I think it's good. Uh, that said with individuals, <laughs> I hate to say it, but like in, in anything, it, it's not for you, me, it's not for professional journalists. It's not for anyone to label anybody until the person themselves wants to label it themselves. And, you know, it's the same with like, if we could use the alcoholism or something is, you know, it's like everyone can go around and say, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic. But if the person doesn't feel like they're an alcoholic or really truly believes they're not an alcoholic or isn't thinking that they're whatsoever it's really not fair for for people in the media to start like labeling someone something when it, it's up to the person to to discuss or, or choose to to not discuss it and i think we all should respect that i honestly do um that said i think i think something with discussion is like the problem too becomes it's like eating disorder and then everyone goes like ooh, you know and it's like if you only knew because like what is an eating disorder do you know what i mean like you can get there's so many layers to that. And, and I will say that like having a healthy relationship with food, <laughs> I, I don't know, like at times in my career, for sure, I was like, I mean, it didn't change my behavior, but I beat myself up. Sometimes I'd have that like piece of cake and be like, Oh, I really shouldn't have had that piece of cake, which is insane. I'm training 900 hours a year. Who gives a shit? Eat the cake, you know, but, but those thoughts crossed my mind hundred percent. 
and I'm just like some guy with like self-control issues with it comes to food. But like I, the fact that the matter is that I would say that to myself and kind of like be pissed at myself later that day, it shows that like, this isn't just a female thing. It's not just a male thing. Uh, people that want to win are going to try and optimize things. And it's a dangerous slippery slope. Luckily I've got such a sweet tooth that there's no chance in all hell I would not eat the cake, but, but uh, it, maybe that's a stupid example, but I'm just saying it's a discussion that should be talked about more openly and coaches. Uh, you have a really hard job and I hope you're educating yourselves in the U S and Canada all around the world, especially with development athletes. These are things that you have to have good constructive conversations, but you also have to respect people's people's autonomy as well. I really believe that. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Well, we'll move on. Uh, Jeffrey Kieser, MD of Utah, um, has a couple of fun questions. Um, first, how do World Cup skiers train between weekends? I assume Sunday or Monday are travel days with Monday, a rest day of sorts. Do they have a hard workout midweek with distance or interval training? How many hours do they train a day? Is most of the day devoted to training or do they have a lot of free time? How do you train for a third? Well, let's, yeah, let's, let's stop there. Um, yeah, I, I, we can just try and answer that question because this is getting a little long in the teeth too, but like, it's a great question. How do athletes train in the midweek? And it, it varies within the season, but, but yeah, for sure. You're going to travel on a Sunday evening after the race or a Monday uh, to the next venue or home. Uh, so you'll have one day of that week that is quite easy, uh, either an off day. If you're traveling all day long, there's just nothing you can do or, or very easy, like half an hour run or an hour run or something. And then most, most athletes will do, will do a strength workout uh, and it's a maintenance strength workout. So like, if you think about in the summer, when you're smashing heavy weights, this will be something more where you do, you know, maybe you're lifting at 70, 80% of capacity, just so you're not losing muscle mass throughout the season. And yeah, most of the time I would say very, very often you will have an interval session midweek and that'll vary, but usually it's on the Wednesday. If your next race is on or on Saturday, and you do an interval session and that'd be more like VO2 max or capacity intervals, shorter intervals, little longer rest, little harder, um, type intervals that you do midweek. And then you have race prep on Friday and, and off you go again, but, uh, totally, uh, you know, I think as a general rule, uh, more experienced athletes, you can, you can think that they're training between like 14 and 18 hours a week, uh, on a competition week. Of course, if it's earlier in the season, there's Olympics kind of thing coming up and championship coming up. Of course, you, you know, there's just periods that you're going to have to almost throw away your, those race weekends and, and you're going to have to train 20 hours a week or 22 hours a week. And that's, that's a heavy load when you're racing twice each weekend. But if you, if you're trying to prepare for, for a championship, there is times in, in a more veteran, I would say career that, you, that you're just going to have to put in some training load and take the races as they come. That's hard to do though. Uh, so by and large, 14 to 18 hours a week with an interval session on a Wednesday or Thursday um, and a strength session. And the strength session is usually done 70, 80% of max. And it's probably done on a, on a Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday or the Wednesday afternoon after the interval. That's something that is uh, to maximize your testosterone boost <laughs> that you get from the interval. So like uh, these are the kind of things that people are trying to do, but yeah, you can, can bank on that but not a lot of long long skis unless you're building towards a championship okay we'll try to wrap up here we'll, we might have to skip a couple but um uh two two uh pretty basic questions that i am pulling out here from more than one question that was getting sent in but um charlie maddows of sumner maine 
Um, he, he's sent a bunch of good feedback, but one of his questions I thought was interesting. Um, have you, uh, it was a political question. Have you heard any concerns in the Nordic skiing world about going to China with China's human rights record and the recent Peng Shui incident in the tennis world? Uh, is anyone willing in Nordic skiing to speak out about either of these? Yeah, we'll soon see. We'll soon see if uh, anyone in the Nordic community is going to speak out about this. But the Norwegian the Norwegian athletes have been pressed about this. And Klebo has been pretty outspoken. Klebo has been outspoken here in Norway and, and questioning questioning some of this. Um, not the Peng Shui stuff specifically, but the human rights aspect. Um, because Amnesty International is uh, has a very strong presence here in Norway. And... Uh, the athletes have definitely been asked and a lot are trying to say like, you know, like I'm just, well, I'm just here for the sport and that sort of stuff. But in 2022, it is right to ask those questions. And I, and I hope athletes, uh, if they have things that they feel strongly about should, should voice them. And I think it's, I think it's an absolute farce when Thomas Bach goes out there and says like, it's like, Oh, you know, like sports got to transcend politics as he's just pulling in like billions of dollars you know, from all sorts of companies and wielding all sorts of influence and putting Olympics in winter Olympics in China, putting them in the, you know, Sochi or, or Pyeongchang. And you just look at the, you look at the budgets of these things and you look at what we're facing worldwide with climate change and you're looking at what the building costs are and you're looking at what the carbon footprint and you're looking at everything and go to an Olympic village, just go to the cafeteria and just see how much trash is created every day and the whole deal, I mean, and the fact that the Olympics isn't moving in a better, more sustainable way when the whole world is at least that's top of mind, just shows how out of touch the IOC leadership is. And it's too bad. Like the IOC, what a great idea when it came out, you know, and you had, you had Olympics in, in, in smaller places with smaller footprints. And it's just become just such a, such a corrupt hunk of garbage sadly but i love the competition so and uh, and it's a still hangs high for athletes as much as i think the ioc is a disgrace personally um i loved racing at the olympics and it inspired me when i was a kid to watch those performances in the olympics as a kid and i didn't know anything about it right i didn't know anything about the corruption i didn't know anything about about like delegates staying in five-star hotels and flying first class all over the place and and being bribed and all this sort of stuff. I know nothing about it. So it still has its purpose, but I hope it could find its way back. That's hard to do when there's no term limits for these leaders. And, um, you know, that's, that's the facts. These people just sit in positions of leadership for eternity and that's, that's rife for corruption. So I hope people speak out in, about their feelings and I, I think they will. We should, uh, we, we should send Devin to the, uh, to the next IRC meeting. Um, okay. So last Last question here, Ross Connell of England. Um, I like this one. Um, one question I'd be interested in you tackling on occasions when Simon Kruger of Norway is whipping out and winning on the Atomic Gen S fixed length ultra side cut skate ski. Have you tried it? Are these skis a magic bullet? <laughs> I have tried them actually, because I've worked with the Norwegian team testing skis um, as the kind of like the lowest man on the totem pole, but like helping with their testing and and stuff like that the previous season so i haven't done it this season but i have i've have tried them when they were in the, the prototype state state and there is no magic bullet with equipment every every ski producer comes up with the most amazing equipment each and every year uh what you don't know is that like fisher always has 
prototypes out there tested that athletes are racing on. Uh, same with Matsus, same with Solomon, new, new bases, new flexes, new grinds, that sort of thing. But with the atomics, yeah, they did feel, they did feel like they tracked a little differently and, uh, they had a different balance point to them. Absolutely. But Kruger wins races because Kruger is a beast and he is the insane capacity and he's a beautiful skier and he's in great shape. Um, but he's the top of the heap on Sol on uh, atomic actually. So any, any new, any new fun and exciting prototypes that the engineers are, are putting forward, he's going to be the first to try it and the first to be able to race on it. But it is always fun, even as a serviceman, like I've been. Um, and as when I was racing too, it was always fun, but uh, especially on the service side of things, when, when the companies come to the wax truck and give you some new technology and you're the first ones to try it, you're trying it before the athletes are trying it. And it's uh, that's always cool. And so they do track, they do track rather straight and they, they do have a different feeling. Yeah, absolutely. But no magic bullets. Sorry. Kruger's definitely getting his boots cleaned out before, uh, before oh, yeah. race by atomic. Oh, yeah. um, and, uh, probably like two atomic guys. <laughs> <laughs> Do they, is the ski, is it really the atomic gen S fixed length ultra side cut? I'm like, I'm behind. I'm I don't know what the, the fixed length. Yeah. I'm a bit thrown off by the fixed length part, but the gen S is true. <laughs> uh, that okay. is what it's called. All right. Well, we just uh, we just worked our way through this uh, entire spreadsheet of questions. So uh, yeah, yeah, that was a, a good good. That was like a fifty k of, uh, of podcasting right there that we just uh, worked. Yeah, through, so. no, for sure. And Hopefully. and you were too kind, Nat. You, you were too kind. You, there was also a question like, why is Devin's internet so fucking oh, yeah. shitty? And you yeah. know what? That's a good question. But as you can see, there's a couple things going on. I don't know why my internet's so slow. Kristen and I talk about that here in Norway. Come on, Lillehammer. Um, so I got to look into that a little bit. I mean, I think it's, I think we're on the fastest internet we can get from for home here in Norway and it's just not that good. Um, so, you know, Norway can flex on a lot of different stuff, but maybe like their internet in Lillehammer, Norway, they, they some leave some things to be, to be admired. They need to step up their game and to, uh, as you can see, people can't see because it's a podcast, but like, I, I'm not rocking any sort of mic whatsoever. This is like straight up like gorilla mode here. Like I'm just speaking into a 2013 MacBook air. So if the sound is garbage, that's why. So I should get a Rode small, um, microphone. That is something, you know, maybe we should put that on the list. Cause I think it does make a huge difference. I was actually noticing that like with Keegan, she had like the whole setup. People can see that at home, yep. but she's like the, the earphones yeah. and like the old, uh, old, uh, like microphone setup. And then I listened to the podcast afterwards just to see like how, because I thought like, wow, he can sound so professional and like so dialed. Like when I, when we were talking, when having that conversation. So I went back and I'm like, but her sound, like when she talks, it's just like so crystal clear. I feel like I am in an NPR studio. So this is a this is a heat bag production here, so <laughs> I'm sorry hey. that uh, I cut out, but but um, maybe that that's something that maybe we should put on the list. We're gonna have to beg Faster Skier to get us like a couple hundred buck microphone, and the internet thing is something I'm just gonna have to work with. I don't know. You know, there's always. I mean, this is like our this is our chance. You could get a microphone sponsorship. You know, Atomic yeah. can send me a pair of Gen S side cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, bacon. But Roda, Roda, if you're listening. If you're listening at all that, I'll, I'd love to take a, a microphone. It'd be great. It sounds like a dream. Not going to lie. What a, what a great product. 
Sweet. All right. Well, we got uh, we got a little break in the World Cup. We'll probably come back with a breakdown of uh, Olympic team selection in uh, in a week or two here, and then we'll obviously be back for uh, Planitza uh, World Cup, which is the last one. Hopefully, if, if it even happens before we go to Beijing. Um, so um, yeah, we'll we'll be back. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sending your questions. I love them. I responded to some uh, by email. So if you didn't hear yours, I probably responded or not responded. And if I also responded and you got it answered on the podcast, that's cool. And those that wanted a written response, we were planning this mailbag episode. So I hope we were able to answer the questions you had. If you have any more questions that won't be out on any podcast or anything, keep sending them and I'll get to them when I can and just respond. I know Nat does the same. So uh, we love having feedback, good and bad. It's great. And keep on rocking in the free world out there. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll be back.